0: I do hope you have your Bibles open to the book of Haggai, as in our time this morning we'll have the great privilege of continuing our study, and we'll be picking up in verse 3 of chapter 1 as we look at the remaining verses of that chapter. If you recall, it had been 18 years since the decrees of Cyrus and 16 years since the altars and foundations of the temple had been restored. It was King Darius who issued for the rebuilding of the temple. And in verse 1, we saw that in the second year of King Darius and in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, addressing first Zerubbabel, the civil ruler of the people, and then Joshua, the high priest. And so here is where we first meet Haggai, the prophet of God, whose words urge the exiles to this work. Like I was speaking to a people who had been struck with a series of poor harvests, a downtrodden economy from said harvests, as well as facing opposition to the work of their rebuilding. Diligent, they were told, to apply themselves in their work towards the temple rebuilding. But as we saw the last time we met, diligent, they were not in that work. There had been no prophetic voice on record since the time of Jeremiah. And Haggai speaking to the people of God, it broke the drought of silence as the restored community had been the ones foreordained by God to hear yet his voice again. And For those with super sharp memories, how was it that the prophet of the Lord addressed the people? He didn't lead with, I told you. Rather, he used the prophet Haggai. And address the two men responsible for getting things done, right? The governor and the high priest. All the while invoking the reminder of their faithful covenant-keeping God by using the title the Lord of hosts as he spoke to the exiles, not as his people, but this people. This people says, the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Let's now seek the Lord's help as we prepare to understand the word before us. Almighty, gracious Father, since our whole salvation depends on our true understanding of your holy word, grant that our hearts, freed from worldly affairs, may in turn hear and understand that word with all diligence and faith, so that we may rightly discern your gracious will, Lord, to cherish it and live by it with all earnestness, to your praise and honor through our Lord Jesus Christ, and in his name I pray. Amen. An observer once wrote of R.L. Dabney saying religion was never a sham with him. It was the business of his life. Can those close to us, I wonder those who observe us daily, say at work or in the classroom or in our homes, say the same for you and me. That the work we're called to as parents, as spouses, as employees, as employers, church members, officers, this work is done with genuine seriousness and conviction, can the same as was said for Dabney be said for you? You see, the exiles, this people that Haggai prophesied to, they lived in this state of not yet, a state that was the byproduct of unmet expectations, expectations that ultimately did not meet reality. In Isaiah 61, we read, You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles. And in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, you shall have double honor. And instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in the land, they shall possess double. Everlasting joy shall be theirs. And this is just one little snippet. The entire chapter is littered with promises. So you can imagine... Knowing this, if you're the exiles, and thinking, well, that's what I'm talking about. And yet, here they are, having finally returned home and armed with these promises, only to face excruciating circumstances that begin to make them question these promises spoken by the prophet Isaiah, as well as the prophet Ezekiel. You know for the exiles, when these promises failed to immediately come true, Their faith, rather than increasing, what we see it do is that it decreased. It faltered. And rather than pray and fast and trust in the Lord of hosts who brought about their return from exile, following the downfall of the Babylonian Empire, they turned to other priorities, creature comforts. And they gave them real estate, too much real estate in their lives and in their hearts. They were then left waiting... For some opportune time to re-engage in the Lord's work. And again, as was the case the last time we met, we have another point of identification with the exiles here in our text this morning. Is Our culture today is one that wants, almost demands immediate gratification. One that believes it's a divine right to avoid pain and suffering. And is even entitled, I would argue, to live... A comfortable life. And in the verses before us now, we're going to see four appeals where the prophet Haggai first begins with the specific situation at hand. He says, this is what's happening. And then he moves to the exile's own concerns for what isn't happening in order to show how their disobedience, their laziness, their apathy towards the building and rebuilding of the temple has dramatically affected the overall quality of their lives. So starting in verse 3, we read that the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. And here emphasizing that these are not the prophet's words, again. Rather, these are words from the Lord. And we see this emphasis upon whose very words these are five times throughout these nine verses we're studying this morning. And unlike King David, the people did not have the building of the Lord's house on their hearts. Psalm 132 shows us that it was David who vowed to not go into the chamber of his house or to the comfort of his bed or to give sleep to his eyes or slumber to his eyelids until he finds a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one, he says, of Jacob. Herein lies... Our first appeal is the Lord appeals to the priorities of the exiles. Saying in verse 4, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? He makes it very clear that the distinction or the contrast between the state of their houses and that of the temple The house of the living God. Their houses, the text tells us, were paneled. The Hebrew root here, it means covered. There's enough structure there. Meanwhile, the Lord's house we see laid in ruins. The prophet pointedly emphasizes by saying, you, yourselves. It's a double emphasis. You, yourselves, that you people are too concerned with who? Well, he tells us, yourselves. Robert Fall writes, it was not lack of money, but lack of will, which prevented the building of the Lord's house. Lack of will. It wasn't resources. Another comment, commentator said they had forgotten, the exiles had forgotten to assign paramount, the utmost Importance to what God required of them, because He was no longer central to their thinking. What became important was what they applied themselves to themselves. Haggai quickly grabbed the exile's attention by pointing to the backwardsness of their priorities. They're so put off by a litany of concerns. Seemingly allowing the opposition and their hostilities to change their priorities, to reorient their priorities. And the prophet says, Now hold on. How is it that conditions are so bleak, so hostile, so oppressive, so dim, on and on and on, that you cannot get back to the rebuilding of the temple, and yet your homes are paneled? They're covered. Seemingly comfortable. And having caught their attention, he moves on to develop the implications of the people's inability to justify what was so visibly evident. The Lord then uses the prophet now to appeal to the reality of the situation. What he can see with his own eyes, the exile's situation. Now therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've shown much or sown much and bring in little. Consider your ways, he says, a phrase we'll see used three more times. Literally translated to set your hearts on or upon your ways. Set your hearts on or upon your ways, he says to them. Clearly their hearts were set on their ways. Lives lived up to this point for themselves And the dregs, those tiny slivers that remain, well, were given to God. And here Haggai is calling on the people to renew their covenant engagement with the Lord by reflecting on those underlying conditions. Consider your ways. Think about. Look back upon. Those things causing you all to develop such apathetic lifestyles. How did we get to this point? Further to reflect on the history of what had happened to them in order so as to see their relationship to him in a right and proper understanding, in a right and proper perspective. As the covenant between the Lord and the people was always based on this history. It's masterful what, what Haggai does here in verse 5 is he uses this verse to demonstrate how scripturally illiterate of a people. His own people, God's people, have become. He says, look, you've sown much, but bring in little. He uses Moses to show them it's been the standard for God's people that disobedience to what God required in the covenant would bring about dashed ambition upon his people. Deuteronomy 28, 38 through 40 reads, You shall carry much seed out into the field, but gather little in. For the locusts shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and tend them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes. For the worms shall eat them. You shall have olive trees throughout your, your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with oil. For your olives shall drop off. He said, Look, it's been done before. This is what happens when you disobey. He shows them that, sure, there's food, something's produced, but only just enough to survive. He doesn't stop there, though, does he? You eat, he says, but do not have enough. The Lord uses these threats of the broken covenant to draw the people's attention to their own experience. They're in the moment, present conditions of life. Leviticus 26 tells us in verses 14 through 16, If you do not obey me, and do not observe all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes, or if your soul abhors my judgment, so that you do not perform on my commandments, but break my covenant, I also will do this to you. And a handful of verses later in Leviticus 26, 26 We read, when I have cut off your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in one oven, and they shall bring back your bread by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. You drink, but are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, he says, but no one is warm And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes in it. Ultimately, the Lord is using the prophet Haggai to show these people that they are never going to be satisfied. They're never going to be content. They're never going to be fulfilled. Always wanting more, either lacking an insufficient means to replace Or the gluttonous desire of more worldly attitudes from more worldly attitudes that promote a more materialistic lifestyle. They're always going to be wanting more. Both wrong, and both inward focused, both man centered. And whatever the case, the situation at hand for the exiles was one of considerable hardship. And they were provoked here by the prophet to consider their ways so as to have proper understanding of why these things were happening to them right now. Another commentator puts it like this, saying this was the challenge being issued to them, because it was. The challenge was for them to see their unfortunate circumstances as God's fatherly chastisement to recall them to himself. By having the people look back, by carefully examining the past, they can look forward with a proper understanding in light of Scripture and through Scripture, because of Scripture. One that then shows instead of cheating God, T.V. Moore writes, they had only been cheating themselves. People were not acting in faithfulness to their obligations as God's covenant people. And this was a byproduct of that. They clearly put their own interests before God's. And as a result, as the saying goes, they were reaping literally what they sowed. Fruitlessness. And so Haggai appeals to the exiles a third time now in verses 7 through 8. That they are to consider their ways and respond accordingly. Thus says the Lord of hosts Consider your ways again. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may, may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. He's saying, Your answer or solution to your problems is pretty simple, it's pretty straightforward. Stop making excuses and reorient your lives to prioritize God. Reorder your lives to prioritize God. One commentator put it like this. Action without reflection is usually unwise. Action without reflection is usually unwise. But reflection without action is sterile. Haggai wants to see proof that God's words are at work in the lives of his people. Be not like Nadab and Abihu who offered profane fire before the Lord, told what to get. And they said, we'll just get it ourselves, which he had not commanded them, the text tells us. It's as if Haggai is pleading with them saying, and please just do what he says in the way he's commanded it to be done. And don't think wiser than God. Intolerable busybodies is what Puritan Stephen Charnot called those who think themselves wiser than their maker. And that's really what they've been to this point, have they not? We'll get to it at some point. Like hamsters on a wheel running and going nowhere. So the task before them is a way in which to demonstrate their desire for God to be with them again. They have the opportunity. They know what needs to be done and now it's up to them to go do it. It's very gracious of the Lord. You know, one of my favorite Americans is frontiersman, Kit Carson. Carson's dad, Lindsay, was actually raised a Presbyterian. And Lindsay, while fathering, this is a wild number, 15 total children, he was a farmer, a cabin builder, a veteran of the Revolutionary War. He fought in the War of 1812. He fought Indians on the American frontier. And he came to actually lose two fingers on his left hand in a battle with the Fox as well as the Sauk Indians. He was a rugged outdoorsman is the point I'm trying to make. He was a veteran of two wars, but what took his life wasn't war. It was actually a tree limb that fell on him while he was clearing a field. So while the task before the exiles was relatively mundane, this is what you are to do. I've told you where to do it, and I've told you what needs to be done. It would be difficult and laborious while also coming with some type of danger. They would have to exert themselves. But a task nonetheless that came with compensation far outweighing any effort and any fear of danger. For it wasn't to be done to build the family home, but for the glory and the pleasure of of Yahweh God. And what we see is that, as was the case for Jacob in Genesis 28:17, of that nameless place becoming the house of God and the gate of heaven, what matters most is not how beautiful or ornate or extravagant the structure is, but the very fact that God Himself will dwell there. For the Lord was not concerned with the physical As he was with the spiritual reconstruction of Jerusalem. John McKay writes Restoring the temple would show that the people recognized their strength and well being derived from the Lord's presence with them. Up to this point, it's no secret that the people had been all too ready to act for their own advantage. So the prophet sets forth the motives of obeying, and what results does it show us from that obedience? That God would be pleased, and that his name would be glorified. He's telling them, guys, if you need any more motivation, you've got the ultimate motivating factor. Your actions will please and honor your God. And that's all they needed. And in his fourth and final appeal, Haggai, he spills out the reason why things are the way that they are. As the Lord appeals here through the prophet to the history of the exile, saying in verse 9, You looked for much, but indeed it came too little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that is in ruins, While every one of you runs to his own house. The Lord showed them what would result from their obedience as motives to it. This should motivate you to obey. And now he spells out additional motives from what would happen through their disobedience. The verb indicating that it wasn't just once, but that it was a frequent occurrence throughout the year. You looked. This happened. It was repetitive. That of wanting more or much and in turn being given little or less. It's going back to the earlier point of contrast between expectation and reality. They expected a lot and when it wasn't immediately realized, they turned away. Reality early on did not match their expectations. And rather than looking up to understand why, they looked everywhere else. And so it became a character trait of the exiles, that inability to discern circumstance in light of God's word. And when you brought it home, he says, I blew it away. The fruit of their labors diminished because that fruit wasn't blessed by the Lord. It's as simple as him not permitting them to prosper so as to force them to reflect, to look back upon their lifestyles and the choices that come from it at a deeper level, at a more pious level. And as a dad of three young kids, I, I just love how this response simply asks that word heard most, and I imagine many of our houses. Why? Why? Says the Lord of hosts, because of my house, he says, that sits in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. It was your attitude, he said, towards me and my commands. He cuts right to the chase, doesn't he? Look at my house, okay? And now now look at yours. Translated literally. Runs to his own houses, runs with respect. That means with purpose, with intent, with urgency. You've got time to get what's needed for your house in a timely manner. Matter of fact. You're even quick to get there. He's saying you've been apathetic towards the spiritual, but zealous towards the personal pursuit. And this is nothing new to us here this morning, though, is it? As Paul tells us as much in Philippians 2, 21, saying, For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. Paul comments... What they had placed at the margins of their lives proves to be central in its impact. What they've placed at the margin of their lives proves to be central in its impact. And until the Lord is given first place, he says, nothing will go right. Therefore, Haggai says to them in verse 10, the heavens above you withhold the dew and the earth withholds its fruit. There's consequences now. Things are the way they are because you all failed to honor God by rebuilding his house, and he in turn is punishing you. He's echoing words of earlier prophets, and he's reinforcing the conviction that Almighty God is not one of many gods, but Israel's God, who is the creator and the Lord of history. And Psalm 135, 6 tells us that the heavens are under this God, our God, their God's control, And it does so as he pleases. Their attitude toward the things of God had resulted in hardship and scarcity coming upon them. Don't be tempted to overlook the dew and think, well, it's kind of meaningless. All they need is one big rain. Because crops in Palestine, they in fact needed dew. Especially in the summer months where it didn't rain. When they were dependent upon the heavy dew that came from the heavy winds... That blew in at night off the Mediterranean Sea. That's how the crops grew. <laughs> was because of the dew. If the dew failed. Then the harvest surely would as well. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains. On the grain and on the new wine and the oil. On whatever the ground brings forth. On men and livestock. And on all the labor of your hands. I made it. Easy enough for them to understand that this was no random judgment. It wasn't by happenstance, but that the ruins of the temple brought about the drought of the land. And it was more than that. Deuteronomy, Jeremiah, and Hosea collectively demonstrate that grain and wine and oil were the three staple crops of Palestine. He's saying no aspect of living is unaffected. All of it. This is covenant language whereby the creator is showing his displeasure with his people and everything in this self-sustaining ecosystem of man and beast, work and leisure, it all was involved in the consequences of the sin of the creation of mankind. Everything was tainted because of their sin. And all could be traced back to man's unwillingness To simply act, to act at restoring the temple. So, where do we go from here? How do we apply this text to our lives? How do we see from the closing of Haggai chapter 1 what the Lord is saying to us here this morning? Well, first, God does not promise the believer a life without problems. John 16.33 says as much in the world, you will have tribulation. Hardship is inevitable for the Christian. Furthermore, this side of the cross is Christ suffered for us. We are called to participate in his suffering. R.C. Sproul said on suffering, we're given both the duty and the privilege to participate in that suffering of Christ the duty and the privilege to participate. If you've come to the conclusion that your suffering isn't just, well, friend, let me encourage you by reminding you of David's mentality in Psalm 1829 when he wrote, "Before by you I can run against a troop for my God and by my God I can leap, he wrote, over a wall. Your suffering, however hard or difficult, however long-lasting, is meant to test and strengthen your faith. One that perseveres when conscious of God and dependent upon him. Secondly, partial obedience isn't obedience at all. We are to not be like the exiles who wanted to be loyal to God but failed to be loyal in every aspect of their lives. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. (laughs) Lastly, further, even in this life disobedience to God will often issue disappointment. But obedience to God is an advancement of his glory. Examine your ways, repent of your sins, and set your heart on the things of the Lord, and he will be glorified. And in turn, as we saw in our passage, respond, he will respond with his blessing. But not like he did under the same terms that he made with Israel at Sinai. A blessing that would have been demonstrated in physical property, or physical prosperity. Because this side of the cross, he's, blessed us with every spiritual blessing. It's a greater blessing, friends. Ephesians 1-3 tells us, in the heavenly places, the blessing for us as followers of Christ is in the heavenly places. It's found in Jesus. He's at work in us right now by his Spirit, convicting us of sin and stirring each of us up to desire and therefore from that desire pursue holiness As we longer after the drink, after the food, after the cloth that do not fulfill, God promises us, us real food and real drink and real clothing in the bread of life, the fountain of living water, the wedding garments of his son, Jesus Christ. And if you do not yet know Christ and he isn't your savior And you're tired of never being satisfied. If this is you this morning, now is as good a time as any to consider your ways. Acknowledge that you have sinned. We all have sinned in and through Adam. Repent of that sin and hear this good news. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, he who believes in me shall never thirst. Friends, only the Lord can provide and promise to give you true and lasting satisfaction in him. What good news this is. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, increase and multiply on us your mercy. Grant us to know that we exist and move in you alone so that we may submit ourselves unto you. Help us, we pray, Lord, to endeavor as becomes followers of Christ, to glorify your name in this world, till we, Lord, arrive at the enjoyment of that blessed heritage which is laid up for us in heaven through Christ Jesus our Lord. And it's in his name.